And this is where I want to step back from what's going on in the short term and look at what's actually happening in the long term and the value creation of these businesses and the compounding, and that is the powerful force. The short-term daily stuff, it feels good, but the plus 10% days, that is the high fructose corn syrup of investing. It is a sugar rush, It you feel like a genius, but nobody retired by catching a stock plus 10% on one day. Welcome to the Trusted Partner Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer and Gabe Chodak. Jesse and Gabe are relationship managers at Cobblestone Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm that serves families and individuals in all aspects of their financial lives. All opinions expressed by Jesse and Gabe or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Cobblestone Capital Advisors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Cobblestone Capital Advisors may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us an email with questions, suggestions, or content ideas to our email address, podcasts at cobblestonecap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Trusted Partner Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Trusted Partner Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. If you own stocks, you'll find this episode interesting. Today, Gabe and I are joined by repeat guest Charlie Ruff. Charlie is a senior portfolio manager here at Cobblestone, and he also serves as the director of the CFA Society of Rochester. He's also an adjunct professor at St. John Fisher University, where he teaches a course about investments. We find ourselves uh, here in the middle of February in the midst of earnings season, where public companies release their quarterly financials and, quite often, have public question and answer sessions about their business. So we decided to ask Charlie today about the importance, or lack thereof, of earnings season, uh, what's new or interesting about this particular earnings season, and if any companies in particular share more important information than others. So with that, let's welcome back Charlie Ruff onto episode 39 of the Trusted Partner Podcast. Charlie, thank you as always for being here and sharing your wealth of knowledge. We appreciate you taking the time. Um, Let's start off and let's just go, you know, what is earnings season? Yeah, so earnings season gets dragged out a little bit, but basically every company, four times a year after each quarter, they will host a conference call and they will give investors an update on what they're experiencing, how business is going, are they you know, are are revenues up, are revenues down? Are there any challenges that are coming along the way? And then they'll have a Q&A session for analysts to dial in and and, and shareholders to ask questions. And um, it's really just an opportunity for investors to interact with management and see how how things are going on with the company. So it's incredibly important on multiple levels because you can see if your investment thesis is playing out with that individual company. But then you can also take a step back um, and get a better understanding for what's happening at a macroeconomic level as well. Do companies have to hold these calls, Charlie? Is is there some sort of like mandate or? They don't. No, no. This is, um, there's no mandate. It's kind of become a bit of a standard that they do it quarterly. Uh, But no, not every company hosts, hosts calls or is open with investors. So some public companies don't. 
don't really don't host in, regular don't quarterly really conference calls. Um, a good example of one that isn't known for being very open with investors is Berkshire Hathaway. Um, they have their annual conference, but they're not doing a lot of Q&A. They're not always going to uh, conferences. So it, it can mean a little bit of both. Um, okay. it, oftentimes, it's um, if you want to get coverage by the sell side, you, yeah. you host these calls, you go to conferences, um, and ultimately investors kind of demand it. Is this right? like every size company goes through this, or is it mostly the larger sized publicly traded companies? Yeah, these are typically the larger publicly traded companies. You see a lot of smaller cap companies do this as well. Um, the absolute smallest companies might be a little more limited, you know, a local bank, something like that. But the larger companies are, are all, uh, are, are all you know, conducting quarterly earnings conference calls. I feel like there might be some sort of um, timeline disagreement at play. Only thinking about our investors, our philosophy, our clients, and you know, generally with stocks, we say you know, there's a 10 plus year timeline, maybe a 15 to 20 year timeline where stocks really become that appropriate investment of choice. And yet we have many publicly traded companies that are going through earnings season on a quarterly basis, on a 90-day basis. So how do we juxtapose those two timelines with each other, Charlie? Yeah, no, it's incredibly difficult. And uh, you, you hit on one of the major issues with uh, kind of the, the, the calendar as, uh, as it's just kind of grown on its own. We do want to think longer term with our investments. And the sell side and analysts, when I say the sell side, I mean Wall Street firms who are covering these companies and providing recommendations, buy, sell, hold, and price targets for each stock. Those are JP Morgan, Bank of America, household names. Um, their analysts are very useful and they're very smart people. And I've worked with them before and they often have a usually a longer term time horizon, but they are interacting with management on a quarterly basis. And sometimes that leads towards you know, wrong conclusions. And I can think of a couple examples where management did something, maybe it was a, you know, uh, an acquisition, and it was very unpopular. And people were very frustrated in the short term. And ultimately, over the long term, they're proven correct, the management was, and they generated a lot of value with that. But in the short term, this was a very unpopular decision, and and uh, investors, and maybe stoked by Wall Street, were very frustrated in the short term. So um, you're right; it is it, it is nice to get frequent updates from management, but uh, you can't you can't miss the larger trends at play sometimes. Right. I want to I want to pick on this a little bit, um, and feel free to push back. But it, it seems like there's some incentive misalignment here as well when you have you know, sell-side firms um, coming up with price targets, analysts um, showing what earnings should look like, and then they're also putting questions forth and um, kind of putting forth their views on these companies. I mean, isn't there some what of an incentivization then for management to provide certain answers to these analysts as opposed to thinking more long-term about just running their business well? 
yeah, yes, that that can you could see a situation where to please to please the street, you know, air quotes, you would you would see management, you know, going off the rails and maybe making short short sighted decisions. At at, the, at that point, though, um, now you're they're doing themselves a disservice. That they're not managing their business effectively. They need to they need to kind of drop the the topic du jour and focus on what they do best. And at a certain point, you you also see management teams that kind of rise above this, and they get to a point where they can kind of walk on water, and uh, Wall Street's not going to question them. Warren Buffett is a great example uh, that is a bit cliche, but there are there are management teams out there that are known to be very good acquirers. Um, Constellation Software is an example of this. When they do an acquisition. They get the benefit of the doubt. People aren't, they're known as a very good acquirer. And so people will expect that. So there's a, there's definitely a reputation um, bias, positively and negatively on, on management teams. Charlie, I feel like there's this interesting price phenomena that happens during earnings season where sometimes a company will, you know, jump up 12% overnight or jump down, you know, 8% overnight. Very, I'm like dislocations is almost the term that I think of. And I think for a lot of outsiders who aren't familiar with the stock market, those sudden jumps feel kind of abnormal and almost like unprovoked. But, but what's really going on there when we see companies release earnings or hold an earnings call, and then we see this very rapid dislocation in price for them? Yeah, so th- this is where you start to see maybe a, um, just a disconnect between what might be going on in the day-to-day and where expectations are. And then where the numbers come out at the end of at the end of the quarter, um, if we want to think about a grocery store, uh, we think that the grocery store makes so many dollars a day, it makes a million dollars a day, and we have 90 days in a quarter, and we think that at the end of the quarter we made 90 million dollars. Okay, that makes sense. Great. Um, well, then uh, the quarter ends and we get an update, and oh my gosh, there was uh, maybe the the local football team was in the playoffs or there was a holiday, or sales were just up and people were barbecuing a lot because the weather was nice. And they, instead of $90 million, like we were expecting, they did $110 million in sales. Wow, like that is, that totally exceeded our expectations. That's phenomenal. Well, we didn't have 90 days to adjust to that. We have one day, one day where we learned that data point. And so we're quickly going to bid that stock up, right? So who is determining these expectations? Um, so that is, that is investors. That is investors who have their own expectations of what they want to hear from a company, um, what they want to see from a company. And oftentimes, there's so much information that these companies provide. They might uh, exceed expectations on a couple of um, data points, and they might, you know, uh, they, they might um, miss on a couple data points. And then it's up to investors to decide what do you care about? Do you care about earning money this quarter? Do you care about the forward guidance that management was providing? Do you care about what they spoke of uh, regarding costs? So um, kind of digesting all this is, is uh, s- sometimes you see the market even struggle with this itself. You'll see a stock that might start off uh, really strong. And management will get on a conference call, or investors will start going through the numbers, and suddenly you'll see it sell off, and it'll end up closing down on the day. Or the opposite, where it starts down, and once 
people go through the numbers, they get a better understanding, and they say, actually, this is good news, and they bid it, they bid it up. Yeah. So, so this is a, a bit of a personal opinion question, but feel free to answer kind of on behalf of how you view the investment analyst world as a whole. But when you're listening to one of these calls and, and a company is releasing some hard data, some hard numbers about the past quarter, about how things are changing, but then also they're, they're kind of layering on top all of this corporate speak mm-hmm. about, you know, they're trying to soften the bad news and really shine spotlights on the good news because yeah. I've listened to some of these calls. So what's your personal take or how do you think investment analysts as a whole, I mean, do they care about what the CEO, how she, he or she is choosing to describe situations or is it really just about the numbers? Um, it's ultimately about the numbers in the long term is the, the short answer. Uh, but messaging is important, and you do have certain CEOs. There have been a couple times where they there have been some. There's a couple calls in history uh, that are particularly entertaining, where management or an analyst have they've kind of gotten into it, and those are always fun to watch, uh, especially if you're not a shareholder in that particular company. Um, but no, I, I think language and communication are absolutely important, but ultimately the numbers are, are what's driving that investment. So we're listening to one of these calls, a company discloses their revenue for their quarter, their profit, and then you always see a, you know, misses profit expectations. The analysts are developing those expectations, correct? When they say that a company misses expectations or misses the consensus number, that number is just the average, or maybe a weighted average, but it's just it's just taken from all the Wall Street firms that cover that company, and they'll just kind of take a, a general average of that. So maybe some people were at 105, some people were at 100, some people were at 95, somebody was at 110, and they'll kind of average all these numbers together, and it was, oh, it was 107. And then the company reports, and it was 106. Oh, they missed expectations. They might have beat some people's expectations, but they missed Wall Street expectations. Isn't it a little crazy to have price jumps and people's investments expressing volatility because of, you know, one guy in a Patagonia vest and one street office in Wall Street, you know, says one thing and another guy in another Patagonia vest says another thing? It, it, it is. And um, in the sh- again, this is where I want to step back from what's going on in the short term and look at what's actually happening in the long term and the value creation of these businesses and the compounding. And that is the powerful force. The short term daily stuff, it feels good. But the plus 10% days, that is the high fructose corn syrup of investing. It is a sugar rush. It, you feel like a genius but nobody retired by catching a stock plus 10% on one day. So Charlie, this episode might not come out until say mid-February. We're actually recording right now on February 2nd and we're what, a week or two into earnings season. I mean, what what have we learned so far as you look out on the, the stock market as a whole, what kind of results, what kind of numbers, what kind of narrative is being told out there? Yeah, no, I, I, narrative is the right word here. So, so far what we've seen from companies and we, we have a lot of companies still yet to report, but we're largely getting very constructive numbers. And this kind of aligns with our, our house view of being, you know, uh, generally positive on on GDP and the economy for through 2024. We have a very strong labor market. Inflation's coming down. Um, 
at the start of the year, the expectation was that the Federal Reserve would have to cut seven times in 2024. We think they'll cut, but uh, we are still pretty positive in our higher for longer um, interest rate outlook. So, and as we get data from these companies, that just confirms our our views. So, uh, J.P. Morgan said it best. They said, uh, "Was it the the consumer is fine? All the relevant metrics are normalized. You have a strong labor market, a strong consumer credit, and kind of that house view is a soft landing right now. Not a steep." deep recession, but maybe a mild recession or no recession at all is kind of the the consensus view right now. Um, And we've seen this Procter & Gamble, Kimberly-Clark, Bank of America, everybody's seeing a lot of strength. And, um, you know, uh, the American consumer is the single largest economic force on the planet, and they are doing pretty well right now. Are we able to see in the earnings that are coming out? I, w- I was listening to a, a call the other day, and the economist was talking about this rolling recession where you're seeing in certain sectors you know, potential recessionary, but overall you're not really seeing what would be deemed a recession. Are we seeing certain sectors get hit harder than others? We're definitely seeing pockets of weakness in certain areas. Um, and we, we've seen some rolling recessions in the past. I think that a really good example of this was probably like, uh, I'll get the exact dates wrong, but it was like 2014, 15, 16. We had a lot of general weakness. The oil market crashed. Uh, the industrial the, the industrial sector was basically in a, was in a recession. Um, but technology kept marching forward, and we just kind of moved right through it. And so we had some... Uh, it wasn't exactly you know straight up and to the right, but it was a it was a tough period. But we we worked through it fine, and there was no recession. And right now, where we have weakness is uh, commercial real estate is weak on behalf of uh, interest rates climbing as as high and as quickly as they did. Um, office real estate in particular is is a weak spot. But beyond that, the economy is doing pretty well. And in general, are earnings seen as a trailing indicator of economic output? As in, like, you know, the, the earnings that we're seeing right now, how much do they signal only stuff that happened in Q4 versus kind of almost like some sort of integral function, for lack of a better term, yeah. about like, you know, the past 6, 12 months and beyond? Yeah, yeah. And this is where you kind of talk out of both sides of your mouth. So the data that you get is all backward looking. That's what's already happened in the past. And in fact, these are these quarters ended December 31st. So we're a month into, this is already a month old. Uh, but what is new and what is forward looking is the commentary we get from management. So when a management team now is looking out and they say, hey, we think we're gonna earn $10 a share in 2024. Well, they already have one month under their belt. And so um, they already have some good visibility. They've probably talk to their largest customers. And so that forward guidance they give is probably more important than exactly what happened in the last quarter. So, uh, but for all intents and purposes, that's, uh, we've been getting some really good commentary from from these management teams. You know, Facebook uh, today had just a phenomenal quarter um, guiding, you know, 
30% growth. I mean, it's just incredible what they're, what they're accomplishing. Amazon, um, if you step outside their, their cloud business and international, just the North American, what we think of as Amazon, that revenue was up 13% from last year. So that doesn't scream recession. Um, and then they have pretty bullish commentary. So we're, uh, we, we feel very constructive about where we are right now. Could things change? Absolutely. But um, barring a, a major shock to the economy, this, this doesn't look horrible for us. So when we, when we look at guidance, right, there's obviously some companies where you can gain some information on that specific company and maybe within their sector. But it's my understanding there's some, some larger companies that can really give some great macroeconomic view based on their guidance, UPS being one of them. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how investors and analysts view something like that? Yeah, definitely. You you have in each industry, uh, each industry kind of has its uh, its bellwether, if you will, right? And and these are t- they're usually the largest companies, and they tend to report a little earlier in the earnings season. J.P. Morgan is one of the first banks to report. They happen to be the largest bank. They touch every single aspect of this economy, and as a financial company, they're in the middle of it all. So when J.P. Morgan reports. It's meaningful. They have a great view into what's happening economically. UPS is another example. Now, I wouldn't call it an industry bellwether per se because that it's effectively a duopoly with FedEx. And I guess you could put the Postal Service and Amazon in there as well. But um, they touch a lot of different aspects of American industry. And so if they have something to say, good or bad, that's pretty meaningful. So um, other ones, I would say Walmart. If you want to know how the American consumer is doing, Walmart has a very good view on that. You know, obviously, overall, we're seeing positive, but are there any kind of surprises out there that we've seen so far? And, you know, again, what can the impact on one specific company maybe have within that overall genre? Yeah, no, that's that's kind of how you, you move through you move through earnings season is seeing these these developments. Um, uh, probably the, the most recent example is uh, New York Community Bank, NYCB, just reported an absolutely awful quarter. They were down 40%. They'd cut their dividend. They need to raise capital. It's just a, it's a nightmare. This stock is just a perennial underperformer. And they were so bad that they brought the whole banking industry down with them. So not only was NYCB down 40%, but they brought all these other banking stocks down uh, by large amounts the other day. Um, and this was one, this was kind of interesting because you saw analysts, the knee-jerk reaction was, oh my gosh, this again? Like a year ago, we had a bunch of bank failures. Forget it, sell it, get me out. And then you had people going through the numbers and realizing that these issues with, New York community were more tied to New York community than they were to the larger banking ecosystem. And so now you're starting to see some investors come back and say, actually, maybe I shouldn't have sold these other banks. Maybe I should, maybe First Horizon or Synovus or Truist or whoever that it was I was invested with, maybe I can go back and buy those shares again. Because while I was panicking, seeing what I thought was an indicator for the industry, that was actually very company specific. So that 
little different than Walmart saying, oh my gosh, the consumer's in a recession. New York community biting off more than they could chew and managing their balance sheet poorly is uh, not always an indicator. So it's uh, moving through earnings season is definitely a process, fits and starts, and plenty of frustrations along the way. And so that's interesting, Charlie. Again, when you see companies like that in the same industry moving up and down in sympathy with one another, that's just another example of kind of conflicting timelines. Because what the behavior must be is that some investors see, oh, NYCB is down. I bet the stocks that I hold that are similar are probably going to be dropping soon because they might have similarly bad quarterly reports, and I'm just going to dump them now. And it, they're kind of abandoning any sort of long-term mindset, or maybe they just didn't have that long-term mindset for that stock to begin with. Yes. No, I would agree. Uh, I think one of the other things that kind of hurts this is uh, thematic ETFs. So um, if you want to sell banks, you don't actually have to go in there and sell 50 different stocks. You can just hit an ETF and sell and the whole industry goes down with it. And so it, it almost makes it easier for these things to trade up or down in sympathy in the short term. In the long term, we know that these things will separate and um, you know the, the winners will win and the losers will lose. But in day to day, it, the, the correlations can be very high for that reason. Is there any pushback against the structure of earnings seasons? And going back a little bit more thematically, and I don't know if people can tell my personal feelings on earnings season at <laughs> I'm all. Starting to see a pattern here. Yeah, pick yeah. up on it a little bit. But is there, right, like maybe once a year, or even making it semi annual, because you see these gyrations, you see this volatility that's caused around earnings season, that if we know taking a long-term view makes really good investors, and this seems to run in the face of that. It does, doesn't it? So let me give you the other side of this. So No, if, my, my oh, side's right. You're right. right. Yep, yeah. good, good point. All right, this has been a great podcast, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> so if we pooled our money together and we started up a business and we hired a manager and we let them run this business, um, and we said, we're long-term investors. We don't want to talk to you for 10 years. W would we do that? Would we give somebody all our money and just let them work for 10 years without checking in? Or would we be like, hey, like, how are sales? What's going on with costs? Like, oh, did you buy your competitor? Did you hire anybody? Did you fire anybody? Like, we, we want to check in on what's going on with our investment. Um, you mean our bar. Our bar, the bar. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so no, we, we would absolutely want to check in as the owners of this capital. We're not going to give management free reign. Um, so yeah, I, I think is quarterly too frequent? Is it not frequent enough? You could go back and forth on that. Certain industries might be, you know, better equipped to handle more frequent or less frequent, uh, a more frequent or less frequent cadence, but ultimately investors want to check in on on how their capital's doing. So it's uh, is it perfect? No, there are plenty of frustrations with how earnings season is set up. So I think that might be the the main takeaway on the the structure of the structure of earnings season is sort of one that it's a little bit like democracy and that it's the the worst form we could have except for all the others. What you're saying, Charlie though, Again, going back to the cliche, Warren Buffett, I know that for the privately held companies that Berkshire owns, some of his managers want to have frequent interaction with, with Warren, 
but some don't. They prefer the hands-off approach, and Warren's fine with that, but he does insist that they have some sort of conversation. Sometimes it's only via letter mm -hmm. every two years. So he's like, listen, I'm, I'm willing to give you the leash. I'm willing to let you simply run this business on your own, mm -hmm. but I'm not willing to let you go for 10 years without any sort of back and forth. We have to check in once in a while and just make sure that we're on the same page. And he's probably getting updated operating metrics pretty frequently. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Th this is the guy who would, you know, at, at one point he had the, the, the daily sales at Seize Candies pretty much memorized. So... <laughs> All right, Charlie, thank you as usual for sharing your wisdom with us. I thought this was a really fun, fun episode to learn more. Now, for a fun question, we'd like to end every episode with a fun question so our listeners can get to know us. Now, I know Gabe had a fun ski trip yesterday uh, down in the southern tier. Uh, let's go around the circle real quick. I'm not much of a skier, but let's share maybe the best ski experience you've had or the ski mountain that you really want to go explore. Sure. And we'll maybe go around the triangle because there's three of us. It's not a circle, but... Um, Geometry whiz. So best place I've ever skied. I've done one trip out west. It was actually my second time skiing ever um, when I was like 24. Um, and I had just learned to ski at Bristol once. Uh, went out to Winter Park and, and that was super, super fun. Great runs, tons of powder. You know, when you can just go you know 30 minutes on a green and really enjoy it and soak it in that 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 was it um you know and i'd say i i really have heard great things about mount tremblant i know it's cold but the opera ski looks phenomenal and that's really where i excel <laughs> nice so i'm not much of a skier at all i've skied once successfully in my life it's probably I, I never feel more unathletic than when i'm on skis or skates so it's something i'm working on that said uh, my wife skates or ice skates ice skates okay. ice skates um that said my wife is a good skier her family's good skiers she grew up in jackson wyoming and so we took the ski lift up uh teton lodge at the teton mountain at teton lodge once uh during, I think it was the summertime. Yeah, we were there in the summertime. And it was just, it was extremely cool to be up there, kind of at the lodge up top of the mountain. I've been up in that same spot. It's awesome. It was really That's... cool. It was really cool. So that would be the one where, not that I can ski, but I'm sure it would be great. It, it looks like that's a difficult one to ski down as well. <laughs> they don't have a green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. no. <laughs> there's, no. <laughs> there's a lot of ways down that mountain, and none of them are easy. None of them right. are green. Yeah. How about you, Charlie? Um, Boy, favorite? I It, it would have to be... Um, I would. I, I had a really good time in Alta a couple years ago. I was out there uh, with a couple buddies and just had a phenomenal time. We had pretty good conditions. Uh, the easy one is is Vail, Colorado. The back bowls are amazing, but um, right now those are kind of in the past for me. So the, the some of my favorite skiing has been at Holiday Valley or Swain, just with my kids. A lot of fun, fun family activity. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Trusted Partner Podcast. We want to start answering some of your questions on the show. So if you have an investing, a financial planning, a personal finance question, send that question to podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Once again, that's podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Thank you again for listening to the Trusted Partner Podcast. Podcast.